Oh, hey, today I want to talk to you about catching fish. One day, Peter and uh, Andrew were doing their family business. They were fishermen. They were fishermen, and one day Jesus walked by where they were fishing. And he called out to them, and he said, hey, drop your nets, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now that phrase, I will make you fishers of men, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men, it's one of the first times that Jesus gives an incredible promise and at the same time some clear direction. He says to Andrew and he says to Peter, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In fact, in your message notes right there on the uh, thing that you found on your seat, the cover was uh, the Dave Ramsey program that we're promoting for the fall, right there at the top of this page, there's that phrase, follow me and I will make you. And then I put a blank there. Now I've already told the story. So you know what goes in the blank. It's fishers of men, fishers of men. But I wanted to ask you a question. If you didn't know this story, if you weren't familiar with the story at all, and you knew that Jesus was about calling people to follow him, how do you think, if you didn't know this particular story, how do you think the average person would expect Jesus to finish the sentence that begins with the phrase, follow me and I will make you? Follow me and I will make you. What would Jesus promise people if they follow him? What would be the promise he would offer? Now, some people probably would think that if Jesus were to offer a promise about following him, the sentence might go something like this. Follow me and I will make you holy. I'll clean up your life. I'll make your life better for you. I mean, you'll look more like God. God will get rid of that ugly stuff in your life and make it better. Of course, that's not what Jesus said here. Or follow me and I'll fix your life. I'll fix you. I'll make you whole. You know, I'll take those broken parts, those wounds that have happened to you, and I'll bring healing and restoration to that if you follow me. But when Jesus began to call followers, that's not what he said. Uh, follow me, and I'll make you effective at ministry. I'll make it such that when you do things, when you serve people, it's incredibly fruitful. That's not what he said here. Follow me and I'll make, you, I'll make your marriage great. I'll make you a good parent. I'll make you a good student. I'll make you a good man. I'll make you a good woman if you follow me. But that's not what he said. Today, we're returning to a story that if you've been in church, you've heard before. If not, this is a new one. And it's a really good day to be here if you're not familiar with this story too much. Because I'm going to take you to what Jesus said he would do in a person's life if they would follow him. And it's actually very special. It's incredibly special to have received from Jesus, and everybody in this room has received this invitation from him already. If you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Let's go in our Bible right there in your message note, Matthew chapter 4, and look at how the Bible actually words the story. Put that statement in context, all right? So Matthew chapter 4, here's what our Bible says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. And then Matthew tells us, because he likes detail, uh, for they were fishermen. <laughs> that should have been obvious, but it wasn't evidently. And then verse 17, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets 
and followed him. And when they had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed Jesus. I want to talk to you about being good fisher men and women today. And, and when, I, when I talk about this, if you're not new to church, I want to tell you what just happened to a handful of folks in the room. If, if, if you're new to church, let me just tell you what happened to a handful of people in the room when I introduced the topic today. A handful of people thought, oh, really? Today's the Sunday I got up and you're going to talk to me about sharing my faith? Some people instantly felt a twinge of guilt because they know the subject we're gonna talk about today is important, but they haven't really been engaged. And, and others are like, how much guilt is Ben gonna pour on us? How much guilt is Ben gonna pour on us to talk about evangelism today? But none of that needs to happen in the room. None of that needs to happen today. I wanna take this idea of sharing your faith, of being a fisher for people, a fisher for men and women, and I wanna put it in, the, in its appropriate context back in the Bible story. And I want to talk to you about one of the greatest privileges of being a follower of Jesus. One of the greatest privileges of being a follower of Jesus is that God loves us so much. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for us on a cross that he didn't deserve, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead. And because of that work that Jesus did, you and I can have life with God. And that life with God is all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. When we were back a few minutes ago trying to think through how the average person might fill in the blank when Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you, you know, you can put something in the blank. When we were there a few minutes ago, all those things that I offered might be, often is, usually is a part of God's plan. When you follow God, well, here's some things that he does for you. He says to you, hey, I know this world touches your life. And I know sometimes it can leave you a little bruised. There's some disappointments, some hurts. And God says to us, hey, I'll heal that. He does. He does. He says that. He says, if you give me your life, I'll work to heal those parts of your life. And that's very good news today because if we could see past the veneer and look across this room, you would see people in this room who came in today and they carried hurts and wounds, disappointments, deep, deep pain in this room today. And you're in the right place because God says, man, if you'll follow me, a couple of things will be true about your pain. One is you never went through it alone. I know it. I care about it. And here's what God says. I'll actually, if you'll follow me, I'll actually take that pain and I'll redeem it. And I'll bring about good in your life through that. Some of us came into this room and, and we're surprised. Or maybe when you first came into a church, you were surprised the building didn't collapse on you. Because you know you weren't doing the God thing at all. And you know, the pile of the dark stuff in your life was pretty high. And so when Jesus says the phrase, come follow me, I will, you could legitimately say, I know how the rest of that story goes. I'll clean you up. I'll forgive your sin. I'll set you on a different path. And that's exactly what God does. It's a true statement. He does that. God literally takes people whose lives have been about themselves and whose lives have been about living their own path, no authority from God. They are the authority to themselves. And God says, I'll forgive that and I'll change your life and I'll make your life completely different. God does that. Follow God and he'll clean you up. 
You give your life to him, he'll forgive your sin and set you on a different path. It really does happen. If you could see past the veneer today of people's lives, you would see people who said, I am following Jesus. Let me tell you what he did for me. He restored my marriage. That's what God does. God takes all the important parts of our lives and he begins to align them better with his plan. And men and women who've been living relatively selfishly with each other start turning towards Jesus, getting a different path of life and marriage and their marriages get restored. They find the power to forgive sometimes or the power to change. And it really happens. Those testimonies exist in this room today. There are people in this room who began to follow Jesus and God gave them a sense of purpose in life. Like they were relatively successful, but when they stood back and looked at their success, they realized that they were leaning their ladder of success on the wrong building. And they began to follow God and realized that that success ultimately was empty, but now their life has purpose and meaning because that's what God does when you begin to follow him. But none of that stuff encapsulates what our story today helps us to understand about the call of God to follow him. I want you to think about this for a second. God gives us this gift of the Bible. And in the Bible, we see a story that is consistent. It is our heavenly father who loves humanity, reaching out to us saying, I wanna know you. I wanna populate heaven with you. I want eternity with you. I'm a God of love. Love demands an object. I want you to be the recipient of my love. And all through the Bible, God is reaching out to humanity. He reaches out in the biggest way in the Bible through the person of Jesus. This is the story of our Bible. This is what God's all about. And when he reaches out and when humanity responds, when you and I respond to God's reach out, He does incredible things. We've been talking about some of that stuff. Sets us free, breaks bondage, restores relationships, gives purpose and meaning, makes life fruitful around important value statements and important judgments of value. He he does that. But something else he does that sometimes gets lost that we're gonna focus on today. He looks at us and he says, my whole involvement with human history has been about getting people to be in a relationship with me. And then God looks at you and I and he says, and I'm going to invite you to do that with me. The whole purpose of the Bible is to reveal a God who wants to have relationship with the human beings he created, not to control them, but a relationship of love and purpose and meaning. And then God looks at us and says, and if you'll let me, you'll follow me, I will actually tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, come do this with me. Come be a part of what I was doing all along. It's an amazing invitation to be invited by the creator of the universe into the very thing that he was doing all through the story of the Bible. And he's still doing it today. He's still calling men and women into a relationship with him. And he calls those of us that want to follow him into participation in that commitment that he has to ask men and women to follow him with their lives. And all those good things that we talked about, that's available. And God gives us the ability to do it. But what that means is, is we've got to turn. We've got to change. We've got to see it. So he says to Peter and then to Andrew and then later to James and to John, his first several disciples. He says, here's the thing. You know about fishing. That's what you know. 
I'm going to start with what you know, but I'm going to make you fishing something different. I'm going to make you a fisher of humans. And we're going to talk about four big implications of this right now. So on your sermon notes, right there at Roman numeral number one, good fishers of men, and I mean this in the generic sense, men and women, they use great bait. Great bait. Fishermen know all about bait. And when it comes to the story that God is trying to write in the world, when it comes to the thing God's doing that he invites us into, the story he says you and I can be a part of, the bait he's using here is the gospel. We're going to unpack that for just a minute. And letter A then, under Roman number one, the gospel is, here's our word, relevant. Relevant. The gospel doesn't need to be changed to be attractional. The gospel doesn't have to be changed. I've been using this word gospel. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about. The gospel, that word good news, refers to the basic story of what God's been trying to do. God initiated a relationship with humanity and said to all of us in this room, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it, but I love you. And so I'm going to start the initiation process where you and I can have a relationship. Because you and I are broken, the Bible says. I'm broken, you're broken. You're not okay, I'm not okay. I'm broken in a way that I can't fix myself and so are you. I need a savior. I don't just need good advice. I don't need to turn over a new leaf. I need to go in a completely different way. The Bible calls that brokenness in us sin, and it says we're incapable of fixing it ourselves. So God sent to us a Savior. His name is Jesus, and the word Jesus literally means he saves. And Jesus lived a perfect life where we haven't. Jesus died on a cross that he didn't deserve, and Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And the Bible tells us that if we'll believe the work that Jesus did, we can have a relationship with God. That's the basic gospel. That's the gospel, that God still loves humanity, and no matter how broken they are, he can restore, redeem, and heal. That's the gospel. And every single person in this room who's accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior has been a recipient of that good news. And that good news is always relevant. It's always relevant. The reason we have to talk about that for followers of Jesus in the room right now is because sometimes we get the sense, I think, maybe, maybe you don't, but I've certainly got the sense that somehow church needs to be made a little bit more relevant. That the gospel is kind of old and musty and smells a little bit like mothballs and modern times have come along and changed and we kind of need to change with it. But the basic gospel story doesn't change. It doesn't have to change. It still has the ability to reach down where you and I live and say, God will meet you there. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the message notes that I have for you there. Verses 1 through 4. Here's Paul talking to the church at Corinth about the relevance of the gospel. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved. 
if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture. So here's Paul, several years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, saying, I want to remind you just how important the gospel is. From the moment you first heard it. It was important then, and it's still important now. It could be. I'm just going to throw this out. For some of us in the room who have been following Jesus for a while, it could be that it's been a while since we've really thought about the power of the gospel at work in your personal life. That power that set us free from the bondage of sin that broke its hold over us and gave us the permission to walk behind the curtain and have a relationship with our heavenly father and all the implications of that. That relationship that results in healing for our souls and purpose for our walk and cleanness and lifestyle. All that stuff that it promises to us, restored relationship, meaningful existence, Eternity with God. It could be that it's been a while, but I want to remind you that you work with, go to school with, are in a relationship with, share DNA with people who have no idea the power of the gospel. And when they think about church and church people, their image is radically different than the gospel image that God wants to bring to them. They think about, very often, judgmental people. They think about people who think they're better than others. People who look down their noses at others. People who maybe put on a facade of having it all together, but every time they got to know a Christian, it wasn't as perfect as it might have originally seemed. And the gospel speaks powerfully to every one of those situations. When Paul was writing to the Roman church, one of the greatest letters in our New Testament. Right at the front part of that letter, in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes these words. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. One of the reasons I like being a preacher of the gospel is that the, the gospel is the great equalizer. It's the ultimate fairness in one sense. It demands that everybody approach the same way. That each person can do nothing on their own to save themselves. You can't, I can't, I can't save you, you can't save me, I can't even save myself. But the gospel acknowledges that Jesus can save and it's available to everyone who believes. And then Paul continues the statement, first to the Jew, because the message came first to the Jews that were in the area where Jesus lived, and then also to the non-Jews or to the Gentile, and that's most of us in this room. It's a great equalizer. It's available to everyone. And again, to stress the point a little bit later on in this letter, in Romans chapter 10, Paul writes these words, for there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Look at the equal statement here. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel makes the message of God, the relationship he offers accessible to every one of us. No, the gospel is relevant. It doesn't have to be changed. We don't have to water it down. We don't have to soup it up to make it more important and relevant in a person's life. It just is. 
And so from time to time, followers of Jesus have to hit the pause button and go, is the gospel still important to me? The fact that I am a sinner saved by grace, that I didn't earn it. That my life after that event is still based on the grace and the love of God. Everything I have, I owe to him. So if we want to be good fishers of men and women, if we want to follow Jesus like the call he first gave, and instead of supplying all the answers to the statement, follow me and I will make you, and then putting a blank, instead of supplying our own answers, going with the answer Jesus called us all to, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, it begins by understanding that what God uses to attract people to him is still pretty good. That's amazing, actually. That's why it still inspires people to write songs. People still give ridiculous amounts of money. People allocate ridiculous resources of time and energy to give themselves to the cause of the gospel because it's still the power of God that saves. Now, letter B then, the message doesn't change, but methods do from time to time. Fishermen know this. They know that in some water you fish in one way and another water you fish in another way. I'm not a great fisherman. In fact, I don't like to fish. I like to catch fish. I just don't like the process. You ever been out on a boat or perhaps standing on the shore and you're fishing fish? I don't like that whole casting and reeling back in thing. In fact, I'm usually just seeing how far I can cast. I'm not really interested about landing in good water. But man, when I get a nibble and I hook something, now that's the 30 seconds of that whole day I enjoy right there. I'm not a fisherman. I just like to catch fish. And I know enough to know that you have to use different methods. My best friend in the world is a very good fisherman. And when we go down to Florida and he's going to take me out on his boat and we're going to go, you know, 20 miles offshore, he always says to me, what do you want to catch today? And I have the same answer. I want to catch shark. I always want to catch shark. You know, that's so boring. I'm like, no, it's not up from Ohio. This is pretty amazing. So we go to the bait store and we buy particular bait. We buy a chum bag, actually. It's bloody guts and stuff all frozen together. And you put it in a little net and you let it hang off the side of the boat. And it begins to leach into the water. And sharks can smell, you know, one drop of blood a mile away. And well, that's how you fish. But if we're trying to catch sea bass, we buy live shrimp. Which, by the way, I didn't know, you know, they'll sting you. I've learned that the hard way. If you put your hand into a bucket of live fish, they got a little thing, they'll, they'll sting you. And they make a glove you can put on your hand so it doesn't happen. I've never bought one of those gloves because I'm an idiot. I will just tell you, they will sting you. And the gospel doesn't change. But methods do. Jesus called to Peter and Andrew and James and John with just a statement. But when he saw Zacchaeus, the short man in the tree, he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have dinner with you. Different approach. Come follow me versus come down. I want to get to know you a bit. To the woman at the well, he was very gracious in the call. I don't condemn you. Go sin no more. And to Pharisees and Sadducees, he was very direct in the way he talked to them. But even in that, there was a call to repentance and a call to relationship. But his basic message was the same. Your heavenly father wants a relationship with you. And your life will find its truest meaning and completion in a relationship with him. 
methods can shift. This is important because sometimes people get all hung up on this. They agree deeply that the gospel doesn't change. And yet they won't acknowledge that within the gospel there's a range of opportunities to communicate its importance. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 again, Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church and here's what he says about this. He says, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. Think about this language right here. I'm in a relationship with God. God has set me free from the penalty of sin and death. I'm free, man. I'm free. And yet I'm going to choose to put on the robes of slavery. I'm going to choose to be a slave. I made myself a slave. And a slave to who? To everyone. Why? So I can win as many as possible. So I can catch as much fish as possible. And so to the Jews, I became like a Jew because I wanted to win Jews to the gospel, to the message of God, to those under the law. I became like one under the law. But remember, I'm not under the law, he says. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but under God's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. When Paul says that I might share in its blessings, that's what I was telling you about earlier when I say God has looked at you and tapped you on the shoulder and says, this gospel is for you, but it's not just for you. And if you'll let me, I'll use the power of the gospel to bring great blessing into your life as you share it with others. So, number two then, good fishermen. Good fishers of men catch fish before they try to clean fish. It's an important little, you know, statement that some people forget. When I go out fishing with my buddy John, we've never been able to clean a fish we did not catch first. Intuitive, isn't it? This is not very deep. And yet, the implication is a very simple statement. is very deep. Some Christians forget the fact that catching fish is the priority that comes first. And cleaning fish comes later. We have to talk about this when we talk about Jesus' call to us that's right at the top of the list. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We have to talk about the principle that you have to catch fish before you clean fish because we can get this so backwards. Let me talk to Christians for a second. I bet you right now in your life have people who you know, and it's not a statement of arrogance, you just know them and you love them, and you know they need the Lord in their life. And one of the ways you know they need the Lord in their life is there's so much junk in their life and directionlessness in their life and pain in their life, and you love them and you look at their life and you're not condescending, you just go, man, I wish you had Jesus. That's really good, by the way. That's exactly what God wants you to think and feel and but something happens. The longer you've been around church, sometimes you look at people in those situations and you forget that following Jesus, committing their lives to Jesus is the first step. And that has to happen before God begins to right-size their life and right-direct their life and right-organize their life. They have to turn towards him first. I grew up in a church environment where people love Jesus, most of them probably more than I do, and they could pray heaven down, man. And when they sung, it was like God's spirit just inhabited the room. And yet we got this wrong a lot. We would try to clean people's lives 
many times before they even accepted Jesus. And we talked about the life that God called us to sometimes to such a degree that we forgot that the life God calls us to can't be lived apart from God. You can't be clean apart from the gospel. The gospel is not about cleaning up your life and earning a relationship with God, getting clean enough so that a holy God can connect with your somewhat clean life. No, the Bible gives us three big powerful words that talk about the reality of the gospel and how it plays out in our life. And I want to give them to you. The first one is the word justification there on your message notes. And the word justification means this, that I'm free from sin's penalty. That's our blank penalty. I'm free from sin's penalty. This is what happens when you commit your life to Jesus. For every person in the room that's done that, at some point you bowed your head and in your way you aligned with the scripture and you said, God, I want you to be God. I'm done being God. You get to be God. I want you to be Lord. I've been Lord. You sung the song, Jesus, take the wheel. And you did it. You let him have it. And when you did that, in that moment, your sins were forgiven and you were justified. It's a legal term the Bible uses. When a judge declares not guilty. There's your record. He pulls out the big stamp and he stamps right on it. Not guilty. You justify. That happens in a moment. And it doesn't matter how dark the record is. Now this is good news, parents. Because I know your kids are as perfect as mine. But the truth is, is they're writing a story. And some of them write it apart from God. And there's a record of that stuff that's kept. The Bible talks about the book that God keeps. And it separates that human being that you love from their heavenly father. And it breaks the heart of God. It's what motivated him to send his one and only son. He loves your kids enough that he sent his own son to come and make a way for your sons and daughters to have a relationship. But there's a barrier between them and God. And it's called sin. But the gospel breaks the power of sin. And it removes the penalty of sin in a moment that one believes. But that's not all that God does. He also sanctifies people. The word is sanctification. This is a biblical term where God not just sets them apart and removes the penalty of sin, but he begins to set them apart and organize their life and change their values. And he works on them, not from the outside in, but he begins to work on them from the inside out. And sanctification frees people from sin's power. That's the blank. This is the gospel too. God doesn't say, hey, I forgive you, give you a fresh start. Now, go do your best. He doesn't do that to you. He's not going to do it to your kids. He's not going to do it to your neighbors. He's not going to do it to anybody that comes into this church. I'll save you, now do your best. No. He says, I'll justify you, and I'll begin working in you. And I'll change your thinking. I'll give you the presence of my Holy Spirit in there and it will be a teacher and a guide to you. And over time, you're gonna grow in your faith. That process of God working in us is called sanctification, but there's an order here. You can't get sanctified until you've been justified, until you've been declared not guilty and the power of God then is able to be at work in you. And so sin is forgiven, but the power of sin is broken. And this is good news for every person who's ever felt like they've had to 
wrestle the same struggles over and over and over again. Some of us in the room know the challenge of addiction. What is the gospel message to addiction? Well, it is this, that the power of God is available to work in and through you to break that stranglehold. And there are people in this room that know that power. Some of us have struggled with our our mouth, you know, and our words don't give life. And they're harsh and ugly. Some of that is the grip of sin that has had a hold of us. It's forgiven, but now God is going to work in you so that your mouth can speak life into your life and into the life of others. And that process where God wants to clean up this is called the process of sanctification. God loves us enough not to just forgive us, but he begins to work in us and bring to us a beauty of of holiness into our life. And the world doesn't understand this. And a lot of Christians have forgotten that God saves sinners, not clean people. That's not all that God does. There's another step called glorification. And this is going to happen to every follower of Jesus. The moment they pass from this life to the next, God is going to instantly perfect all of them. He's going to glorify them. What that word glorify means is he's going to shine his light, the glory of God, and it's going to eradicate everything dark in your life. That's going to happen not on this side of heaven, on this earth. It's going to happen once you see Jesus face to face. And when that happens, you're going to be free not from sin's penalty only and not from sin's power only, but you're actually going to be free from sin's presence. Any sense of sinfulness, anything that's not God is going to be driven far away. And this is that moment that you're going to be perfect and I'm going to be perfect. This is good news to followers of Jesus. Here's why. There are some Christians, I'm going to be honest with you, I just don't like them. That's all right. Listen, you don't like some Christians too. Now, they're your brother, they're your sister. You just don't like them. Here's what's going to happen. The moment we come to heaven, God's going to make them perfect. And they're going to be much easier to like. Oh, and he's going to make you perfect which is going to get rid of your condescension that makes it harder to like them anyway. And so he's going to make you perfect, he's going to make them perfect, and we're all going to get along. And that family of God that's meant to be reflected here on earth is going to be reflected perfectly in that moment. It's the glorification of God. And the gospel then brings to us justification, sanctification, and glorification. And every single human being that walks the face of this earth can be changed by the power of of Jesus represented through the gospel. Number three then, good fishers of men are persistent. Like I told you, I don't like to cast. I get tired of waiting. I just like when they're on the line. But good fishers of men and women, they're persistent. Letter A then, there is an urgency. Like it's important, it's timely, but God at the same time is patient. Urgency and patient. Look at that reflected in these passages. 2 Corinthians 6. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait. It's urgent. It's now. Now you may be feeling urgent for somebody in your life. Like you want it to have happened yesterday. God wants them to come to a place where they are urgently waiting and anticipating and eager to see the gospel at work in their own lives. You see this again in James 4. I don't think I have it on your notes. 
Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or spend a year there or carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The gospel, there's a certain timeliness and urgency to it. It has to be responded to in this life. So it's urgent, but look at the heart of God on the matter. 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some people understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There's coming a day when God's going to shut this earth down. And some people are saying, why hasn't it happened yet? I've heard about it all my life. And Peter gives us the reason. Because God is patiently waiting for as many people as possible to come to repentance, to accept the message of the gospel. This is good news. Because let her be there. Heaven and hell are real places. And everyone spends eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. You're never going to lock eyes on a single person that isn't going to be living for eternity. The question becomes, which eternity? The one that God designed for him, for his children, that heavenly home, or the other place? It's not meant to be a place of, uh, uh, this topic is not meant to scare us, but for followers of Jesus, we can't act like it's not true. It matters. And it's urgent and God is patient because he wants everyone to turn. We talk about that in such a way because number four, good fishers of men and women need to take it personally. Take it personally. Look at how Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. So I'm not going to look at this subject just through my earthly view. I want to see this the way God sees it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then he gave to us, followers of Jesus, the ministry or the servant-hoodedness, the service of reconciliation. Here's what that means, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to you and me, to us, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God makes his appeal through us. That's him tapping us on the shoulder. That's looking to Peter and Andrew saying, Follow me, and let me tell you where this is going to go. I'm going to give your life a supreme level of importance and significance. I'm going to let you help make the appeal. Part of your greatest joy will be letting me use you to share my message with other people. It'll bring you deep satisfaction to know God used you in the life of another person. It'll bring you great joy. Let me tell you what happens here. The enemy of your soul doesn't want you to have joy. He knows the joy of the Lord is your strength. He wants to keep you focused on you. He doesn't want you to have the joy of the Lord that comes from being used by God to share the message of the gospel in big and small ways with others. He doesn't want you walking in that power or that confidence. He wants to bring fear to the subject. What if somebody asks me something I don't know? 
It happens to me all the time, by the way. What if people look down at me? What if I embarrass myself? What if I embarrass God? I don't want to be, I don't want to be like those people. And so the enemy gets in our brains, gets in our minds and says, the gospel was good for you, but don't share it with others. Don't be cognizant. Don't have it on the front frontal lobes of your brain. Don't have it as a motivation in your life to share the gospel. So these next four statements are a way to try to begin to change that. So letter A, take personal responsibility. Which followers of Jesus are called to share the gospel? Which ones? All of them. You're not exempt. This is not a statement of guilt. It's a statement of seeing the high privilege that God would tap you on the shoulder and say, let me use you. Because he loves the people in your life. And he put you in their life in part so that you could help make his message known to them. Here's a way to do it. Letter B, develop a personal relationship with people who need it. Get to know them. Get to know them. The longer you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes the harder this is. And yet we're called very much to do this. Let us see. Personally pray for the fish to be caught. Which fish in your life would you like to see get hooked by the power and love of Jesus? Brought into a relationship, reeled into a relationship with God. Pray about that. And then letter D, make a personal invitation. Make a personal invitation. I'm going to show you how to do that when we take some next steps in a moment. But first, let me tell you, let me tell you when this message began to really hit home with me. I'd been a pastor for a while and we had, this church had just begun to get rolling. And I'd been serving in churches and Christian schools, sharing the gospel with people, reminding people that God loves everybody. One day, Jill and I had a bunch of our family at the house, and it was my sister and her family, and we, we love each other and get along great. And the adults love to get together, and the kids play together so well. And so it was late summer and beautiful weather out, and all the doors were open, and the kids had been playing hide and seek, and that game seemed to be over, and the adults were sitting around the, the deck playing and playing cards and just kind of talking and having a good time. And somebody said, um, where's Max? Where's Max? Now, Max is my third child, my second son, and he's always been an interesting child. We love him a lot. Y'all pray for us. And um, nobody could find him. Nobody could find Max. It's really, really warm. And we had been to the store earlier to buy some snacks for that evening, and Jill and I had gone out in our van and um, brought the, the groceries back and parked the car in the driveway. And at some point, while the kids were playing hide-and-seek, um, Max decided the best place to hide would be to get in the car. And the, the doors were unlocked, and so he gets into the car, and he sat in the seat, buckled himself in. He's about three years old. It had been a routine he had seen a hundred times, and I don't know why he did it. He just did it. He's a three-year-old. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And we didn't see him and notice that he was gone for a very long time, like a long time had passed. We just assumed all the kids were together. And so when they began to say, where's Max? We can't find him. We all set out to look for him. And at first it wasn't a big deal. Like it's not a big deal. 
because he had done this kind of stuff a lot. Again, you guys pray for us, all right? But after about like five minutes, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried. I looked in all the right places. He wasn't there. I didn't know where he was. I got very nervous. And when I get nervous, I go into my directive mode. I start shouting orders. I align the resources. That's where I go under stress. So if you see me doing that, I'm probably under a little bit of stress. I start directing things. You go here, you do this. Said to my wife, call the police. Right? Because enough time had passed. We can't find him anywhere. Uh-huh. I'm a nervous wreck. So Jill's walking down the street. We're walking through the woods. I happened to go out in the driveway, and I'd walked by that spot several times. I just never thought to look in the car. And I see my son Max in the car, limp, lethargic, leaning over. And the heat had built up in the car to such an extent that um, he was barely able to breathe. And he had locked himself in the seat. We couldn't hear him. And um, I opened the door and unbuckled him. I'm crying. Pulled him out. And he's just, he's limp in my hands. His body was drenched with sweat. And we were this close to a tragedy. I mean, we were this close. And called the doctor and put him in tepid, not cold, tepid water and tried to get him to drink and washed him down and he began to revive and, and it was all good, right, until that night. I was broke. I was broke. I'm just broke. Feeling like a failure to some degree, like it's my responsibility, I should take better care of my kids. Grateful, just a wash of emotions. I don't know if it's because we were starting the church right about the same time or not, but it's like God said, you know all those feelings you have? That's me. That's the way I feel about my kids. And they're hurt, and they're out there, and they're lost. They can't fix it. They can't get out. They're stuck. I need people to go find them. I need people to go find my kids. My family's not together. So from time to time, followers of Jesus have to get together and say, remember, the gospel is not just for you. The message of Jesus is the life-giving message given to the whole world. God wants all of his kids brought home. He wants all of his kids safe. And it's supposed to wreck us from time to time. We're supposed to be so grateful that we have been found that we go find people. That we were caught, we go help catch people. And the joy I felt when I held him in my hand. I mean, I'm terrified. I know it's bad, but I was just glad to have him. God wants us to feel that. When you pray for someone and invest in someone and you give to a place that the gospel is shared and you see people turn their lives around. In the last two weeks, we baptized 10 people in this church. Each one a story of redemption. Each one, the gospel of Jesus at work powerfully in the lives of human beings. And you got to be a part of it. We're about to enter a season in our church where just the natural rhythm of life 
people come to church. You'll see a lot of guests around here. And they'll walk in here for a variety of reasons. Somebody invited them. Some will come because it's a food truck rally. Others will come because, you know, they're visiting for a little bit and you go to church, they'll come with you. But they'll need the gospel. And God would like to use you to help get that message that he loves them and he wants his family home. He'd like to use you to do it. So why don't you grab out your connect card and let's talk about how we're going to do some of that as a congregation. I've been talking about the power of the gospel and it would be really foolish for me not to give you a chance to respond to it before we even talk about how we're going to do some of this together as a church. So next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And while I've been mostly talking to our church family today, if you are not yet in a relationship with Jesus and today you felt your heart stirred, we don't think that's an accident. That's God trying to get through to your life saying, I love you. I know everything and I love you. I want you in a relationship with me. The Bible says that you can put your faith in Jesus and that will close the gap between you and your heavenly father. And so we say it around here this way. Take your pen and check next step A. It says, I'm making Jesus my savior. That's the forgiver. That's the justifying I was talking about. And then the Lord, that's where he's a part of your life and he leads your life. And put the card in the offering bucket at the end of our service and we'll pray with you about that. And today, you can begin a relationship with Jesus. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. I know that every time we see people get baptized around here, there are others who are saying, I, I need to do that. I'm, I'm ready. I'm not ready, but I want to be ready. Just check the box and let's have that conversation with you. Now next step C, I want to give you an invitation to Four Corners Church family to write down five people on a piece of paper, maybe on your message notes. Put it in a public place for you, public for you. The names of five people who need Jesus and consistently pray for them. For years, I used a sticky note with five names on it, and I would put that sticky note in various places on my computer. So when I opened my screen, for a while it was on my medicine cabinet door. It's been in books I've read in the front of my Bible even. And every time I'd open it, I'd just say a prayer from God today. Use me, use others. Grab their attention. Let the gospel be real to them. Rescue one of your kids today, God. I'd like you to do that. I'd like you to not just acknowledge the gospel's powerful. I'd like you to believe and act like the call to be fishers of men was given by Jesus to you. Now, next step D then says, I'll invite a friend to come with me to church and to Four Seas Food Truck Rally. So that's happening in several weeks. I'd like you to join with me and invite at least one person. Listen, listen, Four Corners. You have to on occasion bring somebody who needs Jesus to church. It's good for you. It's good for them, but it's good for you. One, you honor and obey the command of Jesus to share the gospel. But you'll watch church differently. On the day you have somebody sitting next to you in a pew and you know they need Jesus, everything we do here looks different to you. That's the day you pray harder for me. God, don't let Ben screw this up. They finally came. That's the day you're praying we sing that song and not this one. Because you want your friend to connect. That's the day you realize the worship's not just about you. And you're worshiping God, but man, you're sensitive to the other stuff going on. 
You need to bring people to church because you need it. You have to remember how precious the gospel is. And our food truck rally would be one of the easiest days to do that. And the next step be, uh, we're, we're bringing Pastor James here. We got communication this week that he's willing to come and we've started the process and we're hoping he'll be here in September. And I'd like for our church family to pray about this. If you're not familiar with this, Pastor James leads our work in India, all the orphan girls that we support, as well as all the pastors who go to the region and shares the gospel. And I'd like for you to help join with me that this process would go smooth so that when September comes around and hopefully we're celebrating and he's here, that it'll be meaningful to him and that the work of God will go stronger here at home and in India. Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I want to thank you for the power of the gospel. I, I want to thank you that you still um, rescue your kids. Thank you for the gift of the gospel. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But man, you love us. And you have taken out all the steps to come find us. You sent your one and only son. God, I want the power of the gospel, the importance of the gospel to be alive in all of our hearts today. I ask you to do that. But God, not just for us. I ask you to use it as motivation for us. That we would all, as followers of you in this room, respond to your call to be fishers of men and women. Father, I want to pray also for those people in our lives who have not yet responded to you. And they're living outside the plan that you have for them. I pray, Father, that you would use us, you would use circumstance, you would use your spirit, you would use other people to reach out to the kids in our lives that you love, your own kids. And you would send them faithful fishers of men and women who would be salt and light, give a thirst for you in their lives and shine the light in the darkness in their lives. Father, I pray for sons and daughters represented by parents in this room. I pray for aunts and uncles and grandparents and neighbors, students and friends. God, rescue your kids and use us to do it. And I pray for those people in this room that are saying right now, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. I can't do it by myself, so I trust the work that you have done in your shed life on the cross of Calvary and in your resurrection. I want you to lead my life. Father, as we get ready for this new season of ministry, Whereas people come back to school, it seems like they also come back to church. I pray, God, that you would use this church to fish beautifully for you. That we would know the joy over and over and over again of being used by you to share the most beautiful, important message this world has ever known. Father, keep your hand upon Pastor James in the process of bringing him here. Let us come together as two representations of your family and other parts of the world right here in this place. We celebrate the beauty that is you and all the work that you're doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.